The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales. Episode 46, Etten Her Own Back, Part 1. wasn't there when Owen hurt Isabel, but like Baba Yaga, he sensed the blow. Unlike her, of course, Lucas was appalled by Owen's actions. His cool, proprietary approach to violence against someone he should have loved, someone Lucas did love, drove Lucas mad with grief and impotent rage. What was almost worse was the fact that Isabel wouldn't talk about it. When they met in the veil, Lucas could see the bruise purpling the face of her avatar. He wasn't there. He hadn't stopped it in time. He blamed himself, even though in an online world anyone could be almost anywhere and, in the reality of the latest surge of the pandemic, no one was supposed to be anywhere other than close to home. Home. A thing Lucas didn't have anymore. He still had most of the money his former workmates had given him because Jarmut's pendants supplied his basic needs and kept him hidden. But he felt guilty camping in relative comfort when Isabel was being tormented. The woven band of sunrise around his wrist that Rosamond had spun for him glowed urgently, the arrow pointing southeast. Jarmut had said he shouldn't use the flying carpet because it couldn't be made invisible, and there was an air base around here anyway. He turned the spindle first for the cap, then for the boots, put them on, and followed the blazing arrow woven into the bracelet. He'd keep going until he reached wherever Rosamond needed him to go. She was closest to Isabel. Once invisible, his bright bracelet was the only part of him that showed, and once he was traveling at speed to any bemused passers-by, he looked like a firefly out at the wrong time of year. Sparky, indeed. He wasn't there. He hadn't stopped it in time. Vasily knew exactly how that felt. Koshche had run interference and the princeling had shown up to his all-important meeting hungover and probably secretly longing for a quick death. But that hadn't spared Isabel. And unless Lucas found his way to Vasily soon, Owen was liable to strike again once he sobered up and realized that he blew it with the Chancellor. The Kempion's newly endowed library would be passed over in favor of a research facility paid for by a large pharmaceutical company owned by a foreign potentate with global ties to those parts of the world where Owen's family name meant nothing. He's on his way. Get ready. Rosamond instructed. Vasily was two steps ahead of her on that score. If there was one thing he knew, it was how to keep his house in order and accommodate visiting heroes. Up against the witch, given what was at stake, he felt like the whole world was the hearth he was guarding, the fire he must not let go out. And Lucas wasn't exactly a hero, but he was young, 
and there was still a little time, a very little time. While she had been relaying instructions to Vasily, Rosamond and Koschei had been talking to Jack in the Vale. So, using your Uncle Diarmid's box, you've crafted a portal that you say should transport her to a world she will recognize without letting on that she's been trapped? Rosamond asked. Yes, but she has to activate the portal in the context of her storytelling and enter. I've been working with Lucas on what the setting should be like, putting all the little convincing details in place. To be sealed properly, she has to enter the veil, but obviously I'd rather she didn't actually notice what this place was. I don't want her burning any books or grinding them into dust and sweeping them away in her passage, Jack said. Neither do I, Moot affirmed. Leave that to us. She won't notice a thing. She'll just think she's gone home, which is kinder than what she did to me. I knew in each second that ticked by and every facet of my crystal captivity reflected back to me that I was a prisoner, Koschei said ruefully. About the other box you were working on, the one Lucas picked up on the first day of storytelling, Rosamond continued. The one that promises paradise but leads to hell? Yes, I have it. But like her portal, I need something to anchor it to. And we aren't going to get Owen to tell a story or to listen to one without putting Isabel in grave danger. Owen doesn't seem to do anything that doesn't directly benefit himself. And he's such a zealous guardian of his family name and fortune, he doesn't even have a personal social media profile that I can get into. Where does the monster's soul reside? Koschei asked. What's his story? In his bank accounts, probably, Jack said. There you go, True Thomas, Rosamond cried. His sister is the dragon. Let the princeling think he keeps the hoard. Just find a fitting way to show him that all that glitters isn't gold, or that, as the poet Robert Frost writes, nothing gold can stay. Jack grinned and a little more of the universe whirred and clicked into place under his flying fingers. Done, he said. He thought again of hell as a loop and superimposed the image of a coiled dragon devouring itself like Isabel's ring. In the center of this, he saw an ethereally beautiful coin, eternally spinning light to dark. Owen wouldn't know what hit him or how often. Isabel wasn't sure what Owen had gotten up to, but just at that moment, she didn't care. She needed to be with her friends and tell a story. Shortly before she was about to begin, Porter Lermont came to check on her. Are you all right, miss? he asked, concern clear in his voice. Yes, thank you. I slept well and I'm feeling quite a lot better, though I don't suppose anyone would know it by my face. Owen's little gift was livid but there was no swelling around her eye. Have you heard from my brother? I expect he's sleeping too, miss. It's the talk of the senior fellows and everyone else. He showed up to breakfast this morning, disheveled and dead drunk, though whether that was wicked work initiated last night, I cannot say. I expect so, given that he went carousing with our visiting scholar, quite the party animal, the professor from Petersburg. Your brother burst in singing a song that would shame a sailor and called the chancellor a tone-deaf old fart when he wouldn't join in, and a few other things too. 
implied he had far more under his kilt than the old boy did under his gown, that sort of thing. Oh dear, Isabel said, suppressing a smile and suspecting that the little man was giving her the heavily redacted version. In any case, your esteemed sibling won't be throwing around his <clears throat> largesse in the general direction of the university. The new library will have to stay a wild twinkle in his bleary eye, and the chancellor wants him gone by tomorrow. He gets a day's grace for his father's sake, and no honorary doctorate either. I'm pleased to say they don't give those out for studies in obscene limericks and drinking songs. Not yet, anyway. Scandalous, miss. Truly scandalous. I apologize for my brother's dishonorable conduct, Isabel said formally, the smile finally winning free. Not your worry at all, miss. If he had a shred of your grace and manners, he'd be a very decent young man. I just came to check on you to see if you needed anything. No, thank you for your kindness, though. The wee timorous beasties and I will do well enough in the lab tonight. Well, if you have all you need, miss, and are sure you won't be popping out for supplies, I'll be locking the doors when I go. You could probably use another peaceful night. Thank you, Isabel said. Vasily bowed and took his leave, securing everything in his wake with barely a jingle of his keys. Isabel watched him go from the lab's security feed. Such a giant of a wee red man. And then she knew her tale. Jack would like it. There would be a giant, with three heads, no less. She worked on her dissertation until it was time to tell her story, her silver quill backing up her work in the black pages of her book. It was coming together, but she wanted to submit the finished draft to Professor Lyle soon. Isabel feared that she wouldn't be at the university much longer if Owen had his way and could talk her father into forcing her home. When her audience gathered... Isabel described them as seated round the fire in the seaside cottage, but placed that cottage on a shelf looking down into the oversized domain of a giant's castle. The effect was deliberately disorienting. Welcome, friends. Is it better to be sparsely provided for with a blessing or well provisioned with a curse? Let's find out. This is the tale of the Red Etten. Etten with one T or trois coming to Scots probably through Scandinavian or Germanic roots, related to Jotun as in Jotun time, as I was once told, at least until our querulous tongues got hold of it. So here will be giants, or at least one with three heads for riddles, though I'm not sure such cleverness ever did the Red Etten any good. There were two widows who led hard-scrabble lives on little crofts side by side. Near Fife they lived, and they were best friends, and their sons, Rab and Andy they were called, grew up closer than brothers. The soil they had to work was poor, and the yield poorer still. Andy grew weary of fighting for his oats and kale, so one day he said to his mother, "'I'm not farming any more.' I'm leaving tomorrow to seek my fortune in the wide world. His mother was angry. She felt deserted. How would she manage alone? Still, she couldn't send her only son away with nothing, even if he was leaving her with little more. So she gave him a bowl and asked him to fill it with water from the well so that she could send him off with fresh bannock. The bowl was large, but had a big crack in it, 
and although Andy ran, there was little water left in the bottom by the time he returned, and the bannock was very small. Will you take half with my blessing or the whole thing with my curse? It's barely a mouthful, mother. Don't be tight. The whole thing, if you please, said the ungrateful Andy, knowing that if he took the whole bannock, he left his mother with nothing for her next meal. She wrapped it for him, but as she did so, she said, May my malison follow you wherever you go and blast you from top to toe. Before he left, Andy called on Rab and gave him a pocket knife, which he had cleaned to a shine. Keep this for me, and if it stays shiny, know that I am well. If it blunts and tarnishes, know that I am in peril. If you see the blade change so, come looking for me, Andy asked his friend. Aye, that'll do, Rab promised. I'll stay and help my mother a while longer, and I'll lend a hand to yours if she needs. But if the knife loses its edge or shine, I'll come looking for you. Andy went on his way. Soon he met a shepherd with a vast herd of fine, healthy sheep. Whose sheep are those? Andy asked. Never before have I seen so many fine beasts. They belong to the Red Etten of Ireland, the shepherd replied. At once, Andy knew he was right to leave his mother and their poor farm. He remembered a song his mother used to sing. The Red Etten of Ireland. Ants lived in Bettigan and stole King Malcolm's daughter, the King of Fair Scotland. Andy thought to himself that as giants weren't known for their brains, he might outwit the Red Etten and he could do worse for his future than steal such fine sheep and win a princess to wed. The princess he wasn't sure wouldn't be a deal of trouble, but the sheep he was certain of. He sang the verse to the shepherd. That's my master, the very same, the shepherd agreed. And he went on until he met a swineherd, surrounded by a huge herd of pigs, any of which would have been prize eating for a feast day. Whose pigs are these? And he asked. They are the property of the Red Etten of Ireland, the swineherd replied. Andy remembered another verse of the song, one that he hoped might make his princess more tractable. He sang out happily. He beats her and he binds her. He leaves her ever bound. And every day he dings her with a bright silver wand. That'd be him, the swineherd agreed. Andy went on his way, dreaming of rich herds and grateful princesses. His spirits were buoyed up by another verse he recalled. It's said there's one predestinate to be his mortal foe, but that man is yet unborn, and long may it be so. But he's here, and it's me, Andy fairly shouted to the hills. You're making a lot of noise for one venturing into the realms of the Red Etten of Ireland, warned a passing goatherd. And I suppose these are his beasts, Andy queried? They are, but if you continue on, you'll meet a herd without a master. Curious and terrible beasts, neither sheep, nor swine, nor goats. Each animal has two heads, and each head has four curling black horns. Be careful. Andy thanked the goat herd for his warning and went on his way. As soon as he found himself amongst the herd of monstrous creatures, he feared for his life, whether he would be trampled, mauled, or bitten to death. He saw a castle and ran straight for it. He knocked on the door, which was opened by an old woman. Who are you? she queried suspiciously. I'm a poor lad from Fife, 
who left home to seek my fortune. You must have your mother's blessing for that. She cursed me for selfishness instead. Well, no hope for it. If you think his beasts were monstrous, wait till you meet my master. He's the real monster. Three heads, as smart as the devil, loves riddles and has a taste for Scotsman. Hide in the corner of the kitchen over here. I'll not give you up. No sooner had she spoken than Andy heard the giant's heavy footfall. He hid. The giant was hungry. With three of his heads stretched long on their necks, he peered into three of the corners of the kitchen, crying, Be he from Fife or be he from Tweed, his heart this night shall season my bread. In the fourth corner, the red Etten found the cowering Andy. I'll ask you three riddles, the giant said. Any one right answer spares your life. First, how many ladders do you need to reach the sky? I don't know, Andy pleaded. How long would it take to go around the earth? I, I don't know that either. What wood is neither bent nor straight? No idea, Andy moaned. Wrong answer, the giant said, hitting Andy over the head with a mallet and turning him into stone. He added his expressive but frightened statue to his impressive collection in the castle. Just at that moment, the knife turned dark and dull. Mother, Rap said, I must go see Gandy. He left me his knife and said that if the blade turned dark, he was in mortal danger. Isabel paused and pressed the hot key, ten of clubs. This story is sometimes called the twin brothers, Isabel said. I've drawn a good card. Shall we have a little break before I go on? I would have thought you'd had enough of twins, Babiaga sneered. Every twin has a singular fate, Isabel said. Good girl, Rosamond approved. But her lad needs a seven-league kick up the... She wove a quick spell and Lucas's wristband glowed suddenly, the color flowing into his magic boots, bringing him all at once to his destination. He took the cap off and stood at the entrance to a college, swaying to a stop uncertainly before a little building with a sign that read Porter's Lodge. A little window slid open. You are Lucas? Yes. Of course you are. Took you long enough, Boychik. I am Vasily Lermontov, Domovoy. Porter Lermont to the students. Scourge of fools, helper and guardian to heroes. What I am to you remains to be seen. Come with me. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful storied place, the ancestral lands of the Sinemuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.